Hey everyone, welcome back for another podcast of Beyond the Dirt. Today we're on episode number four and we're going to dive into um, what we've alluded to a few different times, our watershed projects. Um, I drew the short straw today, I guess, and so I get a lead off the bat um, and kind of talk about uh, the Turkey River Headwaters project um, that we have going up here. Um, and I guess first off we should kind of just give a background as to how they're funded, where they're located, what you kind of thinking about when you think of a watershed project. But I think first and foremost, you need to know what a watershed is. Um, whenever we do field days and stuff, this is always kind of one of the first things that we go over and want to get through the, the kids' brains and make sure they understand what a watershed is. And so I'm going to let Neil take the first stab at it and, and give your best definition or best uh, idea or knowledge of what a watershed truly is. Is that a water tower? Uh, it could. It's included. That's usually the first question, first answer that comes up. Um, so uh, we've got the, well, Iowa DNR and uh, I'm not even sure what agency did. They divided up the nation into uh, certain sizes of what we call Huck numbers, hydrological unit, code. unit codes. And um, so the smaller the watershed, the larger the number. So like our Huck, Mississippi would be like a Huck. Oh man, that's a big one. That's the biggest one. Well, let's take it down. Um, Huck Eight, <laughs> Huck Eight would be like the Tricky River watershed, and that's a that's a very large um, watershed. So what my watershed is is a Huck Twelve, which is about twenty two thousand acres. So Hunter's project is made up of three Huck Twelve. So within the county, Howard County, we probably have at least a dozen Huck Twelves, I'd say. And um, so it all depends on what agency, what the goal is of the project. My project is a, a smaller one, but we'll talk about that later. But Hunters, we actually put three Huck 8s or Huck 12s together, mm -hmm. and that created the headwaters of the Turkey River. I know when we, when you were talking about naming it, we were like, we had two Huck 12s, and I was like, well, gosh, if we take that south branch, then we've got all the, all, we truly have the headwaters of the of the watershed. Yeah, we originally started out calling it the north and west branch of the Turkey River and Cheyotte Creek. Well, that was a mouthful. <laughs> Not to say that the Turkey River headwaters and Cheyotte Creek still isn't a long title and a mouthful, but it's a little bit less. So, um, But the best way I like to describe watersheds is um, I always like pulling a branch with some leaves off a tree and, and have the kids look at it and say, all right, this is basically when you think of a watershed, this is really what it is. The leaves that are stemming off it, those are the farm fields or the maybe say the little ponds or whatever, um, up in the top reaches, and then you got the little branches that come down. Those are like maybe the, the smaller tributaries or what we would call a, a creek. Um, and then the larger main stem would be like your main stem of the river. And so like if we're talking about the Turkey River uh, watershed, the little leaves would be the crop fields and different things like that out there. You got the different branches that come down, so that could be like your north branch, your west branch, your south branch. Um, then your main branch of the river is going to be the, the full-fledged Turkey River that flows down um, through Clayton County and, and Fayette County and stuff like that, eventually into the Mississippi. And so that's kind of the best uh, way that I would say to explain a watershed. If you, if you don't really know what one is or you think you maybe know what a watershed is, um, that's probably the best way to explain it. So next time you're out... With the leaves changing colors right now, I know a lot of people are out and going down the Mississippi, the river road, taking a peek at the leaves. 
Um, and so maybe you can stop and uh, if you got a place you can pull off a branch and see what we're really talking about. It's a pretty good representation um, of what a watershed really is. Um, but the Turkey River headwaters um, up here with my project, uh, the actual project began in 2020 um, and now we're in year three of three. And so most of these watershed projects go in three year stints. Um, you have to write a grant application to get funding. And then once you get into that last year, um, majority of the time there's a chance for um, an, either an update or a request for um, more years. And so we're gonna be getting into that here. Um, come this spring, we'll be able to write for a request um, for more funding. Uh, Neil kind of already alluded to it um, as far as the size of my watershed. Um, it's a little bit larger watershed project compared to some others. Um, we did decide to put those three Huck 12s together. Um, that way we could encompass the whole headwaters of the Turkey River here in Howard County. Um, sometimes it gets to be, um, what's the word, maybe a little bit tough as far as when you're trying to draw out a watershed project or an area that you want to work on. Um, sometimes you want to draw it by county boundaries, sometimes city boundaries, state boundaries, whatever it is. Um, this this uh, shape and form we went for uh, trying to encompass the whole headwaters of it. So eventually, um, if you get up here in uh, kind of western Howard County, not quite to the, the middle half of the county, you can find exactly where that Turkey River started. And uh, you wouldn't think of, of what it comes to and, and what it starts from to what it is down at Mississippi, but um, it's pr pretty impressive as to uh, as how those rivers and stream uh, corridors are made. Um, of that 62,000 acres, um, about 48,000 is row crop, and so predominantly row crop, a lot of corn and soybeans are growing up here. Um, for the most part, my area is pretty flat. Um, you see a lot of it in the Iowan surface. Um, you do see a little bit in the Paleozoic Plateau, and so you see a little bit of the karst topography and whatnot, but the majority of it is um, pretty flat ground and, and really good uh, soils to be farming. So um, if you're familiar with the area, um, how we always like to explain it, the south side of Cresco is kind of the Turkey River headwaters. The north side is then when you get into the Neal's Watershed Project. Um, from the south side of Cresco, it kind of encompasses to the west, um, a little bit to the north also, and so it kind of gets over to that Davis Corners area where Highway 9 and Highway 63 um, intersect. It then kind of strives down uh, six, seven miles, and then eventually works its way back to the Cardinal Marsh working its way northeast. Um, and so we actually shut the this watershed project off right at the Winnesheek Howard um, County line. Um, and then the next watershed project, Matt Frana, um, his project starts up right there at the, the Cardinal Marsh Bridge. And so it works really nice how we have multiple projects butted together, um, all with the same goals and whatnot, trying to implement conservation and different things like that. Um, the funding, all these watershed projects are a little bit different. Um, and I think that's what makes them so interesting. I mean, a lot of people sometimes don't know what we do here or what goes on or what we have the capabilities of and they definitely don't know where where our money comes from i mean everyone always knows where we work for the government and so the money comes from taxes yes um but this watershed project is actually funded through um, the iowa department of agriculture and land stewardship idols um and it's now funded through another branch called the water quality initiative or wqi um and so that's just kind of one um, sector of the state of Iowa where we get some funding for for watershed projects um, and we'll get into in the next podcast um, Neil's going to talk all about his project and there's a lot of similarities and a lot of differences 
Um, but the funding sources is probably one of the biggest differences, I would say. Um, and then into the next thing, the next biggest difference is the goals of the project. So all these watershed projects um, are usually developed with a impairment or a reason or goals that they're trying to achieve. And uh, with our watershed project, our main goals align exactly with the Iowa nutrient reduction strategy. And that's as far as reducing nitrate, phosphorus, and sediment. And all the numbers that they have in the percentages, we're not gonna get into that, um, aligns with the Iowa nutrient reduction strategy. And so if you haven't heard um, of the Iowa nutrient reduction strategy, it's basically the strategy that Iowa put in place to try to help and eliminate the Gulf hypoxia. Um, so obviously with all the water and all the streams that flow um, from headwaters or from other watershed projects, they eventually flow into the Mississippi, eventually flow downstream and into the Gulf of Mexico and there's kind of that little bit of that hypoxia zone, that dead zone. And so we're trying to do our part up here in Iowa as to eliminate or reduce as many of those nutrients as possible. And so we um, basically wanted to stay right aligned with those as far as the same percentages and different things um, with our watershed project to kind of correlate and have the same um, consistency um, over time with the Iowa Nutrient Reduction Strategy and the watershed project. Um, I'm going to try not to bore you too bad with the numbers and stuff, but um, there's a lot of great projects that go on. And when we started the, so whenever you have a watershed project, you have to do a, a planning grant stage. And we actually went through two planning grants um, before the project actually got funded just because we changed the size of the watershed and added that extra HUC-12 um, to it. Um, but we had to do a planning grant where you basically go out and gather a bunch of data. You're going out there, you're doing what they call land use assessment, where you drive every square mile of the watershed and you document what kind of crop is out there, what was the previous crop, whether it was timber, CRP, um, that sort of thing. And so you're putting whatever the land use is out there. Um, if it is a crop field, then you dive even farther and you're putting down um, what kind of tillage they're using or how much residue is out there. Um, and so these surveys are done in the springtime, so um, the crops are just starting to come up, so you're able to easily identify them um, without having to get out every single time, because um, that would just take a, a, real, a really long time. And so being able to do the windshield survey and, and knock out a lot of acres really quick is important. And so um, we're able to get a lot of numbers down with that way with the land use. Um, our DNR specialist, Andy Assel, is able then to draw um, some different soil and real erosion, erosion numbers. Um, and give us some kind of baseline numbers as far as what we had out there initially and then eventually as we go through the project um, in multiple years of the project we'll be able to do multiple land use assessments and then see the differences and stuff like that and that's probably one of the coolest thing and um, I haven't worked here near as long as Neil but I've already seen that process change and flip over um, the first time we did the land use we basically had this uh, old tablet where you couldn't even hardly see unless you had very dim lights and uh, it was very, very slow. And so basically what we did is we had to go and print cert maps of all the farms out there. And so we had a stack two foot high of, of certification maps that we had to then take out in the field and, and mark down on the maps what they were and whatnot, and then come back and translate with the iPad. Since then, they've come up with an, an app that's on your smartphone or tablet, whatever it may be. And you're able to interactively drive around. It shows you your location. You can click right on the field. It's got all the clue layers built in. So you can click right on it. And a lot of times it's got previous data uploaded from previous land use assessments. And so it gives you kind of a, a starting uh, position. And then you're able to go right through there and pick out all your different drop downs and whatnot it is. 
And what was the coolest thing about it is when we did the Turkey River the first time we had the app is um, Dalton and I went on the east-west roads and Neil and Dakota and Andy went on the north-south roads and they were able to knock out those. We were starting to go on the east and west and as we were intersecting and getting close to each other, the fields were popping up in the different colors correlating with what was out there. And so you knew instantly what was actually being done or had been completed so we weren't duplicating things. And so this app just, I mean, it probably cut the time I mean, by 80%. I mean, it was ridiculous. I mean, when we would do the hard maps, I don't know, a month or more, two months. I mean, by the time you got stuff printed off, got stuff aligned, got out there, did the survey, then put it back into the iPad, it was easily at two months. This app is so simple. Andy has it all loaded up, and we knocked out these 62,000 acres in about three days. I mean, it was impressive um, how quick we knocked it out. And so um, being able to have that baseline data and no kind of, um, what's out there to begin with and then we also do our kind of other assessment is a rascal assessment um, rapid assessment along stream corridor along length stream. close enough stream corridor length yep close enough yeah we're gonna have a whole episode <laughs> just on these acronyms because I need I need to brush up on them too but anyways it, what it basically is is getting in the stream and walking where there's actually water in a, a creek bed or a Wherever the water started is we're able to walk down that. Every 500 foot, we are basically turning around, taking a data point or a snapshot of what that riparian zone is, what's adjacent to the riparian zone, what we see in the stream as far as the, the stream bed, the depth of the water, the clarity, I mean, everything. And so we ended up um, basically starting from that tile line, walking all the way down to Cardinal Marsh, and then all the other different tributaries and branches that, that come off of there. And you went ever know that these were there because on a, a normal map it's not going to show it because a lot of these either have intermittent um, water flow or you just don't they just don't show up and it just looks like maybe a little bit of timber and whatnot. Well I think though doing the rascal is probably the most important um, thing as a project coordinator you can do especially if you're just starting in that project you're up close you're in the stream we, we do it in the summertime so it's nice and warm out so we're walking the actual link in the stream water in the in the stream bed and there's probably what maybe 20 different parameters that we're looking at and recording mm -hmm. but you know we're we're uh, first off we've interacted with every landowner because we asked permission to do this um, usually we get permission a couple people prefer us not to walk through but that's fine um, but the um, the nice thing is that you really get a hands-on up close you can see what is going on in the watershed I did mine, oh gosh, probably in 2011, I believe. And uh, so we're, we would have liked to have done it this summer, but we were a little short on staff, so we weren't able to do it. Hopefully next year, we got the land use assessment done. But uh, I tell you what, for um, that project coordinator to really get a hands-on and really see up close the what's going on with that stream, the rascal is so important. Well, in a lot of cases too, um I mean, even myself, I mean, I'm from the area I've been around, but I'd never had walked the entire branches and all the creeks and all the stems and stuff. Which was how many miles? It was about oh, just short of 50 miles. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if you truly draw a map of the, the Turkey River headwaters and whatever, you maybe only get maybe, I don't know, 20 maybe, if you're yeah. lucky. Yeah, we because I mean, we walked every branch. Any every, branch that had decent flow, we'd walk up yeah. into. And I think in my watershed, it was 27 miles. So, yeah, yeah that's about right. So, this right. stuff adds up pretty quick. But... 
even nonetheless, I mean, a lot of these watershed coordinators when they're starting out on a project area aren't from the area. And so maybe they have no clue what the landscape is out there. They have no clue what they're actually dealing with. And so given these two different assessments that they are required to do and get out, see the landforms, see the landscape, get in and see the stream is very, very important so that they know what they're starting with um, and working. And so then once you get all this kind of stuff done, then you're ready to finally write for that full implementation. Um, and we are lucky enough, and like we said, in 2020 to get picked up for a watershed project. And normally the WQI projects, they call them a demonstration project. And they're basically, at the beginning, they were really focused on the cover crops deal. Then they started to kind of evolve and look at the wetlands. And now they're really wanting to promote the bioreactors and saturated buffers. Well, we kind of took a different approach to it. Um, B and I had worked with Neil before and he kind of was the one who trained me. I wanted to take this watershed project as a full traditional watershed projects, seeing brick and, mor brick and mortar projects, um, the grass waterways, the egg waste, the stream banks, all that kind of stuff. Stuff that's going to stay there year in and year out for years to last and not just a one-year management practice. Um, and so that first year, I mean, we had a lot of great projects. We did about a little over a million dollars worth of conservation. Um, and since then, it is significantly blown up. Um, to date, just right now, I mean, we're still, we just started year number three and um, would have been a July 1 start date of for this last year and we've already got over 1.7 million dollars worth of obligated conservation and so um, the year started off with a, with a bang and we're just going to keep cracking away and with EQIP and CSP selections to come here this uh, late fall early winter um, we're really looking forward uh, to keep growing that number and invest a lot more money and so a little over five million dollars in three years is pretty good um, granted it's a little bit bigger watershed so you got to scale it um, to what you're working with, but nonetheless, it's still a lot of great practices and a lot of great um, projects getting completed. Kind of the, um, I want to say, big number I like to promote is, yeah, $5.2 million a lot, but w what people are actually looking at is how many acres are getting completed. Um, last year when I had my annual review, I put a number together. Is we had 30,000 total acres of conservation implemented in the 48,000 acre um, row crop area. And so a very significant amount of that, and that basically contributes to CSP practices or enhancements, equip cover crops, stream bank projects, um, WQI cover crops, and different little odds and ends, wind breaks, and this and that, and CRP. Um, and CRP uh, is taken out of that 48,000, so you had to bump that number up about 6,000 acres. Um, but still, it's a, it's a lot of acres getting something done um, and that's when we talk about the different programs and whatnot. That CSP program is really kind of all-inclusive because um, it's not just paying for, say, let's just say cover crops, and that's it, done. It's helping pay for um, variable rate of um, fertilizer. It's helping for soil tests. It's helping for, like, the Haney tests and different things like that. I mean, there's a lot of different odds and shapes and forms that can be put into this program that's not just one management practice. Um, then kind of the next thing, I mean, we've talked about a lot was the cover crops. Um, so far, the cover crops since the project has started has really blown up. The year of the planning grant in 2019, um, we promoted a little bit. We didn't have any funding for it. Um, it was just kind of the, the guys who had traditionally been in the EQIP and, and CSP program um, that were doing it. And so we had just about 1,500 acres. Um, so not a lot, but at least we had some going on. It was kind of just that new emerging practice at that point. In 2020, when the watershed project started, we still didn't have direct funding for um, 
cover crops, we had to use the, the state cost share pot of money. Um, they were getting maxed, excuse me, they had to get maxed out at 160 acres. Um, and so we ran into some problems as far as getting more acres in that people wanted to do. And then finally in 2021, uh, Matt McDonald, who's my project admin, um, finally said, hey, I got some money for you. Here's $100,000. And I don't even know, it might have been a week. And we got through that 100000 like that. I said, you got any more? Um, we got some more acres that we want to do. And so, I mean, it was definitely a testament that once we got some money, um, we were able to pick up a lot of acres. Um, another kind of help to that, and we've already kind of talked about, was the MRBI. Um, we were down actually in Austin, Texas, uh, when the deadline came up for a, for a conference. And so we were actually kind of going back and forth between the conference and the hotel room, um, trying to get that grant submitted and wrote off. Um, and so we actually secured uh, a little over $300,000 a year for, for equip cover crops through the special pot of money just for the watershed project area. And so that helped bump that number up. And then uh, this fall we'll have just, uh, just under 16,000 total acres of cover crops getting uh, seeded. So um, that gives you a little over 30% right now of, of the total watershed area covered in cover crops for this fall. Um, both a mixture of winter hardy and non-winter hardy, um, which is a, a pretty good number, but it's not near what uh, the champion Silver Creek can do. Um, but yeah, we're still proud of it. I mean, as far as the growth that we've had in those four years, I mean, that's pretty pretty good growth as far as keeping those numbers going. Um, and we'll see if we can't get over that 20,000 mark uh, for next year. I mean, those cover crops do a lot of good things. I mean, um, the infiltration rate, creating that habitat or that uh, food source out there for the wildlife, and then just helping with those infiltration rates when we get those heavy rainfalls either this fall or even next spring. I mean, they really do have that lasting effect on the soil structure and different things like that. Another kind of um, practice that I wanted to highlight that we've done a lot of is the grass waterways, um, mainly because they can have such a, a large effect and such a large, uh, um, when we talk about water quality as far as holding that sediment up on the ground where it should be and not flowing down those gullies. Um, to date, we've installed just over 35,000 feet, um, which if you kind of break it down, um, is about 32 acres, which then equates out to about seven miles of waterways. Um, and so for, a, I mean, it's, yes, it's a larger watershed, but a pretty small area, seven miles of waterways is, is, is quite a few. And I mean, we've had some really, really big projects um, that have gotten completed um, that made some huge farm transformation. I mean, some of these gullies can be anywhere from six inches deep on a pretty minimal scale up to two, three foot and to, to shape those out and get a growing grass on there and being able to have that farmer able to cross and plant into them the right way rather than planting parallel and having the running on the edges and different things um, is pretty important. And uh, one thing I'll never forget about is the actual sediment reductions. A, a, a gully, a one foot by one foot gully can have up to 45 pounds per year per acre of sediment running down that gully area. If we do a grass waterway, we can change that down to one. And so if you do all the math, and I'm gonna save you the calculations, but basically before we had these waterways installed, and this isn't even including the other gullies that are out there that we haven't even addressed yet, it was almost 1,500 pounds of sediment that could be eroding down the stream. Okay, so it's not very often I correct Hunter, but oh. it's not pounds, it's tons. Tons, oh man, even more. Yep. Yeah, it's not 45 pounds per acre. It's 45 tons per acre. Now, if you add that up, I mean, it's that's crazy. Um, but, you know, it's that concentrated flow. I've always said the waterways are kind of like the highway system of a farm. 
and it's that where that main flow of water, you got the heavy rains, it's going to be that concentrated flow. Once you've got that area um, protected, um, shaped out so you got nice shape, it's got capacity to hold up to a hundred year storm, and we get that all grassed up with some nice brown grass, it, uh, you know, that, that's going to hold up. But to go from 45 tons per acre down to one ton a year, I mean, one ton a year is still a lot of soil, but that is probably one of the best practices that we have in our, in our conservation toolbox. And uh, it's uh, something that I love doing. It's like Hunter said, seeing those transformations of those farms that um, you used to drive by and you see these gullies every, every fall. And now we've got these beautiful maintained mode waterways is fantastic. Well, in a lot of cases, well, I shouldn't say a lot. In some cases, we've had projects where it once you get a gully going through there and you can't cross it, then it kind of gets neglected and you don't do the work on it. Well, a lot of times there's tile in the area. Well, then the tile gets plugged. And before you know it, you got a two foot by two foot cut or more. You got willows growing up and then you got standing water and it's just a mess. And then you just have to completely revamp the whole area. And some of these things, um, they've actually gained more crop ground because these areas have gotten wider than what they really need to be. They're too wet. They can't get near them. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, these are an, an absolute must. And it's one of the easiest practices there is. I mean, there's days where we have people come in who um, are interested in waterway. They show us where, we, they, where they want them. We go out that afternoon. We get them surveyed. We bring them back. They get designed. And we could be building them within a couple days, really, if everything works out with the funding and whatnot. And so it's not a hard practice. It's it's one of the easiest ones out there. Maybe cover crops might be easier. Yeah. But nonetheless, it is an easy practice and does a tremendous amount of good out there on the landscape. The next kind of one, and I mean, this is going to save even more soil, is stream bank stabilization. I mean, you guys have seen our creek beds and our stream beds, our river beds. They are getting beat up worse and worse and worse and worse every single year. And that contributes a lot of sediment and a lot of phosphorus to the streams. Um, and so if we're able to do these stream bank projects the best we can in, in high priority areas where the, the bank erosion is the worst, we can really save a lot of soil and keep it where it needs to be and really cement those banks and hold their structure how they, how they need to be. Um, like we've always talked about, Iowa is one of the most changed landscapes. And that's kind of the reason why we have to do some of the stream bank stabilization is because a lot of these creeks have either been straightened or shallowed out or whatever it may be. And so the water's trying to do its natural duty and slow itself down with its velocity. And that's the re-meandering process and different things like that. And so um, we've done a lot of stream bank here in the watershed, a little over 2,500 feet, um, which that's gonna get almost doubled here this winter. We got five water or five stream bank projects picked up here um, just a few weeks ago. Um, and so we're gonna be able to do a lot of good and get some rock out there on the banks and inc incorporate um, kind of a new aspect is the fish habitat part of it, and we've talked about that in our earlier podcast. Um, but it's a great project. It's a great practice. The, the landowners absolutely love it because a lot of the times these, these riparian zones, either they got trees near it, they got CRP near it, crop fields near it. A lot of times it's a recreation area for them. They maybe have ATV trails or side-by-side -side trails, whatever it is. And if these creeks keep eroding, it's going to take those trails out, and they're not going to be able to ride or they have the steep banks. They're not going to be able to drive down into the creek and cross. And so it's uh, it's really important for us to be able to connect that landowner to their piece of property and enjoy it to the to the utmost ability. Uh, the last practice that I wanted to talk about that we've done a lot of is wetlands. In these last couple of years with the changes in CRP, with it being 100% cost share and eligibility requirements and stuff, we've been able to do a lot of them. 
Um, and so just these last couple of years, we've had six completed. Um, and we got five still in the, in the hopper ready to get built here this fall um, slash winter. And so these do a tremendous amount of good as far as water quality, um, reducing that phosphorus and that nitrate. Um, Dalton Nelson, who used to work for us here, um, unfortunately has left us. But he uh, his senior project when he was at Upper Iowa was basically um, seeing how the nutrients were reduced from the inlet side of the wetland to the outlet side compared to different uh, land treatments above, whether it was CRP, crop field tilled, crop field no-till, crop field cover crops, whatever it may be. Um, and really across the board, he found a lot of the same things as far as the reductions. And some of those numbers were anywhere from 60 to 90% um, reductions of the, the phosphorus and the nitrates. And so these wetlands um, do a lot of good for the water quality. It, it helps um, reduce those nutrients and Everyone loves having a pond or that wetland out there to see the ducks, the geese, um, and different things like that out there. What's nice about it is it's one of these edge of field practices. You know, we've got the bioreactor, we've got the saturated buffer, and then we have the wetland creations or restorations. And um, of those three, I mean, we want to do all three of the practices, but obviously the wetland creation is the most natural. Um, you talk about the um, uh, transformed landscape. You know, the, the prairie, the tall grass prairie, obviously that got plowed under um, for production agriculture. The other thing that has been a huge transformation in Iowa is the number of wetlands. And I think we're, I think we're down to like 1% of the um, native prairie that's still left remnant prairie around the state. Um, and I think the, the, the wetlands that were across Iowa, those are down in single digits also. So it's just a natural way to restore some of that. And it's one of those things you can still farm the best buffer the rest. These what usually happens is we're down on the lower end of the farm. We're we're treating that tile outlet water, and usually it's down before it hits the creek. We create a, a nice shallow area where um, this water can uh, be uh, daylighted into it. Just the process of having that water surface. There's a denitrification of the water, and also um, the plants that grow in there. Um, so, yeah, it's a beautiful way to enhance the landscape. And once again, one of those things that um, it's one of those things that uh, due to the transformation of Iowa over the last couple hundred years, it's a nice practice. And Howard County is a pretty wet county. So pretty much anywhere you um, create an excavation, there's going to be water. So that's kind of fun. Yeah. I mean, and enough with the numbers. I mean, I love talking about numbers. I mean, dollars spent, acres treated, that sort of thing. Um, but when you get down to the nitty gritty, you got to have something that you can show, something you can take pictures of um, <clears throat> and be able to show to those landowners and say, hey, this is what you now have compared to what it was. And the Turkey River watershed really presents a, a large variety of landscape um, changes and, and kind of components. Um, on the eastern side, you see a lot more of the, the, the big timber, the wooded area. You see a lot of the recreation part of that. And then as you start to kind of work your way westward, you see a lot more of the CRP, the row crop, um, and different things like that. And so it kind of presents that kind of uh, best of both worlds where you're right on the edge of that drift list, you're getting a little bit of those rolling hills, the timber, and then you start to work your way in kind of the, the flat ground, which really presents a lot of different opportunities as far as hunting, fishing, um, recreation, ATV trails, snowmobile trails, um, whatever it may be, there's a lot of different ways that you can get people involved um, out there. And kind of one of our keystone areas that we always talk about um, is the Vernon Springs Mill Pond. I mean, you got the Cresco Country Club right up on the hill there. It has a beautiful nine-hole golf course. 
And then as you look down the river, you got our arch rapids um, or our rock rapids or fish ladder, um, whatever you want to call it. I mean, and that was not always there. This was something that got installed um, going on almost 20 years ago, not quite, um, probably 15. Um, but previously there was a low head dam there and in 2008 with the floods, um, it took on some damage and then it was kind of one of two things. We can either A, repair the low head dam or we can use the same amount of money and we can put in this fish ladder and really improve this fishery. And at the time it was kind of a, a pretty controversial ordeal as to what should happen or what could happen. Um, and thankfully they went ahead and they, they installed this rock rapids and basically it's just a stepping stone or a stepping pool of, of rocks um, that allow those fish then to work their way up. Um, even like right now we haven't got really a significant amount of rainfall in over a month but yet there's still enough pools and enough water flowing over where fish wanted to they could still work their way up. And being it was one of the first uh, what we call mitigations of a low head dam people didn't really have an idea of in their mind what it was gonna I mean we kind of knew what it was gonna look like. Um, Dave Puffer was um, working here he was a project coordinator also so we we kind of got a little got our feet wet and got helped with some of the surveys and stuff on it but um, once it was completed um, we replaced that low head dam which was dangerous um, you know the, they're all due to the hydrology of the water going over it um, there were some drownings there in, in the past but what's kind of cool now is just the interaction of families and people and mm -hmm. people fishing or just playing on the rocks um, it went from a, a pretty dangerous location to this beautiful but serving multiple purposes, um, especially for that transport of fish from uh, the main branch of the Turkey River up into the headwaters. Yeah, and I mean, right before they completed or started this project, they tagged some fish down below the, the low head dam, which would not be able to get over that low head dam unless you had like some steroid walleye <laughs> or something that could jump five foot over yeah, the dam. We don't have those jumping salmon or, <laughs> or flying carp, I guess. That yeah. kind of so they take there, some but. fish down below, they implemented this project, and within just a couple weeks, they came back and did some surveys and found some of those tagged fish already up above. And so instantly you were seeing positive results. And ever since, um, I believe it's a world-class fishery. I mean, some of the fish that have been um, caught or harvested out there are top-notch. I mean, there's a lot of wall mounters out there. There's a ton of good eating fish. The reproduction out there is is tremendous. And you're really starting to see, I mean, even like the smallmouth bass, you're starting to see them starting to naturally reproduce up in these farther, higher stretches or into the headwaters, as you could say, where you normally wouldn't see them. And so that's really a testament to the water quality, the work the farmer's doing, um, and different things like that out there. And so, um, yeah, it's always fun to talk about the cover crops, the waterways, and that sort of thing. Um, but when you can, Neil's going to tie, I know he's going to use this line, but if you can put a fish in someone's hands, that's, that's going to really get you somewhere. Yeah. Um, we could do a presentation on all the data that we've collected. Hunter is amazing at um, formulating all that data into a document. And, uh, you know, I need more than one cup of coffee to sit through <laughs> that. Um, but when you have that visual and you've got that trout in your hand, um, and you can show this is this is a benefit of those improved water quality. I mean that that picture is worth more than a thousand words. Yeah. And I won't drop any fishing secrets or locations out there, but um, I mean there was a walleye caught a couple of years ago that was just short of a, the state record, and it was caught in the fall. I mean if that caught, fish would have been caught in the springtime, I think it definitely would have surpassed that that state record out there. And you show the pictures of some people, and you show them where it was caught, because usually it's when we're on our tours. And they just, they're just in disbelief. They can't believe it. They can't believe that a fish of that size is able to, 
to live in this body of water to reproduce nonetheless because um, there's not just one of them out there there's been multiple out there there's been multiple caught um, and so it's it's pretty impressive what you see out there and not just the fishery I mean the wildlife too I mean the number of pheasants the ducks the geese um, the white-tailed deer turkey I mean everything out there I mean it's it's a world-class uh, recreation area especially um, if you uh, can find those kind of sanctuaries in the wooded areas and CRP and whatnot um, so I mean it's a great watershed project we're gonna keep crack a lack and hopefully it's a watershed project to stay for the future um, our next kind of goals are to really start to dive into that that edge of field with the bioreactors and saturated buffers um, but before we sign off here we're gonna do something different we're gonna put since we're already at 35 minutes we're gonna put four minutes on the clock we're gonna stay just short of five and uh, we're gonna put five minutes on the clock Neil's gonna rattle off as many questions as he can I'm gonna see how many answers I can get out in five minutes we'll see so how, what's uh, the topic what am I supposed to anything ask you? anything and everything he didn't come very prepared I, I typed a list of questions just say I don't want to get stumped. Well, I've been looking at this uh, last rapid fire thing. I'm like, what are we going to talk about? Fire breaks or, or uh, burning? Could be anything. Could be anything. All right, I'm going to start the clock. Four minutes. Ready, set. Uh oh. All right, name as many types of CRP practices. Oh, my God. Numbers or? I want the numbers, and I want you to make a short explanation. Holy smokes. This is going to be the whole four minutes. CP1, introduced grasses. CP40, introduced grasses. CP5A, tree planting. CP8A, grass waterway. CP9, wetland. CP12, food plot. Uh, CP25, native prairie, tall native prairie. CP27, 28, shallow wetland. CP29, uh, uh, grass buffer. Riparian grass buffer, CP30, marginal pasture land something, <laughs> CP31, marginal pasture land timberland, uh, CP33, quail buffer, CP38, uh, quail habitat, pheasant recovery, CP39, uh, pasture wetland creation, CP42, pollinator, CP43, prairie strips, I know it's a CP88 something but man that's, that's awesome as as I, all i can do that, that, <laughs> you got an a plus on that that's awesome <laughs> i would if i would ask that at a watershed conference hunter would be the only one that could answer that and most likely yeah we love CRP. crp we we kind of run it up here so we uh we do so that's awesome good job um so our edge of practice fields give me three different benefits of doing the bioreactor the saturated buffer in the wetlands treat tile water Reduce nitrates, reduce phosphorus. Okay, that was a lot easier. Um, let's see. Um, so name some of the different species of cover crops that we use. And if they're over winter, if they're winter hardy or non-winter hardy. Cereal rye, winter hardy, most popular. Winter camelina, winter hardy. Um, radish, non-winter hardy. Turnips, non-winter hardy. Vetch. Non-winter hardy, maybe? Uh, once in a while, it'll carry um, over. Let's see what else. I know I'm missing the big one out there. Rapeseed, non-winter hardy. Oats, non-winter hardy. Yep. Those are kind of the top ones, so very good. Um, what do we got left? A minute and a half. So, um, 
So you talked about your um, uh, planning grants, that there were two of them. What was the major funding source for those, and, and when did we do those? Oh, man, you're going to date me back. I was still in college, and I had to do the first planning grant, and uh, that one might have just been straight through idols. I don't think the WQI took care of that one. Um, and then this newest planning grant was through actually WQI um, back in 2018, 2019. And actually, it was supposed to go an extra year, and we had everything basically already completed in the first planning grant, so we just had to do that extra sub-watershed and revamp a couple little things, and so we actually were able to finish it early, and, and we were actually had one year planning grant while we were starting the implement, implementation stage, so a little bit different that way. All right, name some of the species of fish that you have in your watershed. Oh, man, here we go. I, I don't even know where to start with the, with the minnow species. We'll go with the big ones. Walleye, smallmouth bass, northern pike, suckers, carp, crappie, bluegill. Um, I said northern brown trout, brook trout, um, rainbow darter, fathead minnow. Lots of other little minnows. <laughs> yeah, I think if uh, we had Teresa Shea here from uh, Fisheries, she could name off probably 50 minnows. But uh, One more. Right. One more. One more quick one. Um, oh, how often do you do reports and who do you report to? Well, I mean, you could... I could do a report every single day. I mean, I'm basically when I'm talking to farmers, you're basically giving a report every single day. But as far as... Formal reports, I mean, every month we give a report to our commissioners, which we're going to get one of those suckers on here pretty soon. Um, so one one report every month to the commissioners. I have to do a quarterly report, um, which is every three months to, to idols for my watershed project um, and what's going on there. And then uh, one time a year, um, basically an annual review or annual report um, where you get the funding sources to come on up. We do a tour and that sort of thing. So Very um, good. You answered those pretty well. You went I actually pretty, did pretty good thinking of the questions. Went pretty easy. So um, <laughs> we're going to sign off here, and we're going to jump right into his Silver Creek project, and we're going to make a separate episode for it, and hopefully we can make this one work. I mean, we're definitely no podcast gurus, and right before we did these uh, rapid-fire questions, it kind of shut down on us. So I guess we're going to figure out how we can uh, meld some some videos together and figure that out we'll We're see gonna venture into editing so yeah. we'll see so we'll see what we can come up with but anyways we're gonna sign off here episode four of beyond the dirt podcast